From New England Public Radio, this is the Valley Voices Podcast. I'm Chris Riley with NEPR's digital production team. I quickly called the adoption agency and they said, there's a baby waiting for you in a hospital in Virginia if you can get there tonight. And I, I could. As we get ready for another season of our popular Valley Voices Story Slam with the Academy of Music, we're delving into the archives to feature the top three stories from our Love Struck Story Slam held back in February of 2015. Here we feature stories of rushed adoptions, learning to love through illness, and transformations through parenthood. Up first is Deanne Moore. I was standing on a curb alone in front of some hospital in Virginia, holding a brand new car seat, and inside was a precious two-day-old baby who may or may not be my son. 24 hours earlier, I didn't even know he existed. I was immersed in a two-day conference down in DC when I saw a flurry of messages on my phone. I quickly called the adoption agency and they said, there's a baby waiting for you in a hospital in Virginia if you can get there tonight. And I, I could, but my husband couldn't. So I asked, is it okay if he comes later? And she said, well, check with the birth mother. I'll text you with the answer. So I go back into this meeting and I'm a wreck. I'm staring at my phone, I'm shaking. The session ends, I'm milling about, and the text came in. The birth mother said it was okay. I turn to the woman next to me, a complete stranger, and I say, can I hug you? I'm having a baby today. And she threw open her arms. I rented a car and spent the next five hours crying, calling friends and family, telling them our great news. I also took this time to get my head around the fact that it would be two weeks before I could legally bring this baby back to Massachusetts. And I made peace with the fact that my husband would need to spend those two weeks in Massachusetts with our two older sons. So it was gonna be me and baby alone in a hotel for two weeks. I needed provisions. I blazed into a Kmart. And you know, when I was pregnant with my first son, I had, you know, nine months to make important purchasing decisions like, you know, what color binky should I get? But in Kmart, in 15 minutes, I had a cart full. And thank God they sell alcohol in Kmart in in Virginia. I threw two bottles of wine in and headed for the door. I got to the hospital late, late at night, and I met with the adoption attorney and he said the birth mother had just signed the papers. But then he looked at me and he said, she was very distraught. I think she's going to change her mind. You will be the one to bring the baby home tomorrow morning, but you need to prepare yourself for the worst. You have 10 days that she can change her mind. 10 days. I went into the nursery and I held him for the first time and... He was perfect, but the attorney's words were so heavy in the air, and I just couldn't help to think, but how do I stop loving this child? The next morning, I picked up baby from the hospital, and we're on our way to the hotel, and I am in survival mode at this point. I need food, and I'm neurotic about food. I eat organic, I make my own bread, I make my own muesli. I'm looking for Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, a farm stand. I didn't see any of those, but I did see 
a Rite Aid, and they had all sorts of tasty treats like Dinty Moore beef stew. And I threw it in, and I'm walking out the door, I grab a box of those Ferrara Rocher chocolates. And when I got back to the hotel, I put out 10 chocolates, one for each day that the birth mother could change her mind. And Baby and I spent those days snuggling and cuddling. It was magical. And I tried really hard to keep love at bay. We struggled with naming him. Like, it was too stressful. Like, naming him would somehow make him ours. So I just called him Baby and rocked him gently to sleep every night. And every night after he was fast asleep, I would unwrap one of my Rite Aid chocolates and I would pour a glass of Kmart wine and I would toast the air and I'd say, we made it through another day, baby. And somewhere in the middle of those sleepless nights and anxiety-filled days, I realized I was foolish to think that I could ever stop loving this child because I wasn't love-struck when I first got the call or when I first held him or when I first rocked him to sleep. It had happened a year earlier, the day that my husband and I decided that we were going to adopt. From that day on, we were expecting and we were already head over heels in love with this child and nothing can stop that. And now a year later, we're still hopelessly in love with our beautiful son, who we named Paxson. Thank you. Deanne Moore talking about her daunting path to motherhood with her son, Paxson. Next, Corita Mayfield tells us about her mother. Hi, my name is Carita, and I am a mother's girl. Um, my name is spelled K-E-R-R-I-T-A, and this will be important later. And one day I asked my mother how she came up with the spelling of my name. And she said that while she was pregnant with me, her oldest, she sat down with the root Rita. Rita's my great-grandmother's name, and she raised my mom. And she sat down with all possible prefixes and suffixes until she came up with a name that she liked. So cool. And I have two younger sisters, and the pattern of our names is K-vowel, double consonant I. And it's a cautionary tale about impregnating English professors, but um, <laughs> uh, my sister, I was about 25 before I figured that out. So I call my mom, and I'm like, you're a genius. And she verifies that she's a genius, and she also adds that you know I'm kind of inattentive. And we get along like that. Like, I'm all big gesture, and she's all calm and Jesus-y. And, um, but we're like that. You know, and so as an English professor, my mother has these really funny turns of phrase. So my sisters and I love to roughhouse, and we roughhouse loudly. And so my mother would come, and she'd stand ab above us and say, God gave me such beautiful children. It's a shame about their idiot syncrasies. And, or she, you know, if one of us didn't call her for a whole three or five days, which apparently is a million years in the mama verse, my mother would call us and she'd be like, so, um, are you hanging out at night? Because night is dangerous. What are you doing? You have been incognito. <laughs> 
once she held up my sister's thong and asked, what does one do with the residue-doo? So my mother is just, she loves a turn of phrase, and so we share this love of language. But the brain is a mysterious thing. And if you think about your brain, the, the, fr the front part of your brain is the frontal lobe. It's gooey spaghetti until your early 20s. You can think of it like the undergrad experience. Or then you go to the very back of your brain, the very back of your skull, and what you have is your reptilian brain. And then you go up a little bit, and between your ears is a basal ganglia. And then one day, 10 years ago, poof, my mother has a massive stroke and it leaves her paralyzed on her dominant side and aphasic. And aphasia is kind of like having your words in a cloud. And sometimes you can reach a word and pull it down to you, and sometimes the words elude you. And because of this stroke and the paralysis, people tend to treat my mom like she's this dumb, fragile egg. But I vowed that you know, every day I got my mom on this side of the horizon line, that I would treat her like a fully functioning, sentient human being. I would treat her like she was still my mother. And so we've developed what I could think of as neighbor talk. We kind of talk next door to the thing that she wants. And so if it's Sunday, I know it's probably a conversation about church and church folk. If it's Saturday, it's probably a conversation about sorority meeting and her sorrows, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But this day was Tuesday, and I didn't know what the hell she was up to. So I'm like, okay, what part of town were you in, Ma? Were you by yourself? Were you with a friend? No, and she goes, nope, nope, nope. And it's kind of like looking at a mugshot book for the person who robbed you of your brain. And she goes, nope, 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 nope. And so I'm like, okay, so what were you, what was in this space where you were? And she says, fat people, scales. And I'm like, oh, you went to Weight Watchers. Um, <laughs> and that's how we talk. We talk, we have neighbor talk. And so part of my promise to my mother was to treat her like she was still there, which was hard because the stroke obliterated a lot of good mom training. And so we had our first fight, and frankly, I thought it was going to kill her, but she, you know, was, I, she made me mad. And so she made me mad, and she was mad, and she was mad that she was mad because no one, you know, treats her like she's anything other than stupid. So she's sitting here, and she's shaking her little frozen fist, and she's looking me dead in the eye, and she's like, you are a rutabaga. And all I could think was, I love you. You're so amazing. You remembered that I hate rutabagas. Thank you. That was Corita Mayfield who took home first place that evening for her story of strength in the bond between mother and daughter. Now Sarah Rivers tells us how she found love after looking in all the wrong places. She handed me a lit cigarette, stained red from her scarlet mouth, and I knew she would change me. I was struck by her Jezebel beauty and her brazen statement of smoking in our middle school bathroom. I met Rose at a time of great loss. I was 13 and had just been kicked out of my religion. I grew up believing I would always be protected. 
I never thought I'd lose the love of my congregation and my God, the love of my father. I never expected to be shunned by the very people who promised me eternal life in paradise on earth. See, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that those not in the truth will die of fiery death at Armageddon, and Armageddon can happen at any moment. So when they cast me out with the wicked, I welcomed this beautiful, destructive path to hell, and Rose was happy to lead the way. She was my Pandora's box of firsts. First time getting high, getting drunk, and my first time doing everything with boys. I marveled at this new anything-goes lifestyle, but my love affair with freedom never felt permanent, and it never was. Rose became Maria, became Jane, became every broken girl who clung to me because I was broken. No amount of alcohol or nameless boys could make me feel less alone. Love was just out of reach. I was snatching at ghosts, my grasp empty every time the smoke cleared. One day when I was about 16, I woke up severely hungover. It took me a while to realize I was in a strange place with a strange man next to me in bed. I knew at that moment that if I continued on this construct destructive path, I would end up dead. So I took control. I stopped partying, got my GED, and started college. I tried to live this normal life, except no one taught me what normal meant. At 18, it was terrifying being out in the world without angels or demons leading my way. So I made a decision that I knew would change my path permanently. I got pregnant. As I felt the creation of life swell inside me, the emptiness lessened with every flutter, every kick, every handprint pressed against my belly. I knew in my heart that I deserved real love. After a very healthy pregnancy, my son was born blue. He had pneumonia, liver failure, kidney failure, three seizures, and a bleeding brain. He was ripped from me before I could even touch him. I had cursed him with my past. As my son lay all alone dying in the NICU, I thought, if only, if only I had believed the world is wicked, if only I had been the subservient angel my father wanted, if only I had remained the sheep the religion expected me to be, then maybe my son would have a chance at life, a chance at love. I couldn't hold my son or stay with him in the hospital. We were separated by a plastic incubator and the many wires and tubes that kept him alive. We were separated by the wrath of Jehovah. That emptiness crawled inside where my womb used to be and it spread until it occupied my every feeling. And then it happened. On the sixth day, they placed my son in my arms. Love struck me so hard, I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I thought I'd lose him forever. It took 
a tiny dying baby with no power or expectations to teach me love is limitless. And I discovered love is messy, unexpected, agonizing. It rips at your every fiber, but real love is never conditional. My son, he's now 18. He inspires me every day. He is my truth, the greatest love of my life. That was Sarah Rivers with a story from the Love Struck Story Slam back in February of 2015. Do you have a story to tell? Next month, we'll be hosting the second Valley Voices Story Slam at the Northampton Brewery in downtown Northampton, Massachusetts. The night's theme will be Stranger. Are you our next winner? Visit nepr.net slash valleyvoices to learn how to audition your first line on our Story Slam hotline. This has been the Valley Voices Podcast from NEPR. I'm Chris Riley, and you're listening to New England Public Radio.